practice. All right, howdy, porch folks. It is good to be back with you all. Um, before we jump into the sermon, I just, uh, you know, I've done this announcement the last couple of weeks. Um, I just wanted to let you guys know we've made a little bit of progress. We raised a little bit of money on the um, on the matching grant. Uh, I think the last time, um, the last time I talked to you guys, we were still what was it, four grand away? No, that's not right. Yeah, about four grand away, four and a half grand. Um, so anyway, we've made a small dent in that, but we still need to raise a little bit more money, and we have about two or three weeks to do it. Um, so we still need to raise a couple uh, grand more. So I appreciate it. I know some of you reached out to, like, um, um, you know, people you're connected with um, and just told them about the porch and what's going on, and I know some folks have given. Um, so I just encourage you again, if you um, if you want to help out, you can give. All the info is there on the website, um, or if you want to, you know, help us uh, fundraise, you can reach out, that sort of thing. Um, uh, that'd be great. Um, we're really grateful for the funding we've received and for how God has provided for our little church plant. Um, and so, anyway, I just want to thank you all for, you know, helping out so far and, uh, you know, encourage you to to give if, you, if that's what you want to do. Um, all right, so today we're going to be back um, in the book of Luke, continuing. So last week we read uh, kind of, there's, there's a big passage here, um, and... Um, Last week, we sort of read the middle of the passage. So today, we're going to read the end and the beginning and the rest of it. Um, so last week, we read the parable of the soils. Today, we're going to start, though. We're actually going to begin uh, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Um, I want to read to you the Tower of Babel story. So if you don't know this story, um, this is from, um, you know, right after the flood. This is kind of one of the next things. Noah's flood. This is the next story that pops up. It says this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made bricks of stone, for stone, um, and bitumen and mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, like the um, Salesforce Tower. And let us uh, make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing is possible that they propose, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse the language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left build, they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So the the story with the Tower of Babel is that all these people come together and they decide to basically to reach God themselves. And so um, as uh, in their pride and their arrogance, so God scatters them. He, he spreads out people. And so the story of Babel begins this theme that we see all throughout Scripture of how, well, I mean, it kind of continues this theme, of how, um, how, how people are separated, people are spread out, people are, community is... Um, is disjointed. Um, but this is not, Babel is not the way we're, we're supposed to be. Babel is a result of our sin. This, this spreading out and this, this uh, separation of humanity is not the way it's supposed to be. The Garden of Eden, we were in perfect community with God and with each other. And that's why within each and every one of us, there's this deep-seated longing for community. It's something that we can't get past. Even, um, 
introverts like me who like, you know, I love a road trip where I go on a motorcycle trip for two weeks by myself and I don't talk to anybody except for waiters, right? I love that. But even within somebody who's like me and more introverted, uh, there's this deep-seated longing community, longing for community. Now, if you look around our world, what you'll see is um, there's a lot of really uh, sad attempts at fulfilling the the Eden community that we're all longing for. So like take social media, for example. Um, I've said this before, but connectivity with somebody is not community, right? Um, social media is, um, it's, it's called buffered community, right? So think about Instagram and um, like I sit at the beach now in my minivan. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I told you guys all that, but we got a minivan and I, I built a little office in it and I go sit at various beaches and different scenic places. And what I see is a lot of people come up, um, and they're trying to get pictures of the bridge, you know, with them jumping in it or whatever for the Instagram and, um, the, the Instagrams or the TikToks or whatever it's called, Facebook. And, um, they'll take like a hundred pictures and then they'll choose one, right? Because what they're doing is they're choosing the one with the best angle, the best lighting. And so that you look at their life and you think, oh, that's what their life uh, is actually like. Um, or, you know, like the other thing I follow is um, because of my van or like the two things I'm really into. I like is like watching videos about sailing people with sailboats. I like watching videos and stuff on YouTube about people who build out vans, but even that is all you don't see. There's very few videos. It's like, Hey, here's all the terrible things about living in a sailboat, right? It's all the, Oh, here's me spear fishing in Barbados or whatever, you know, that sort of stuff. So anyway, social media is a really terrible way to get your community because what you're getting is fake community that makes you feel bad uh, about the way that you look. It makes you feel bad that your room uh, does not look very good. You know, it's not organized like the, 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 oh, I forget her name, the Japanese lady, you know, this sparks joy. This one does not spark joy, right? That's all on social media. And that's, that's not the real world. Um, another area where we try to like do community is like third places like coffee shops. Um, but if you notice, what do we do when we go to coffee shops? Right, like I used to back when we were allowed to go places and do stuff. I would go sit in Beacon every day, and um, uh, but what do we really do? There's a little bit of community, but most of that was me trying to start community. Most of that was me trying to reach out and build relationships with people. Uh, if I hadn't done that, mostly what we would do is we would sit there on our laptops with our headphones and completely ignore each other. So we're in this space with a lot of people, but we're uh, we're completely alone. Um, or we do the same thing at like sporting events. How often when you go to a Giants game, do you actually talk to the person next to you? Very rarely, right? There's a, something that binds us together, but it's not real actual community. Um, there are some attempts though that we make that are a little bit better, but still not ultimately fulfilling, right? There's things like um, book clubs uh, where people get together and talk about a book. There's motorcycle clubs. Um, there's interest groups. And I don't mean like Sons of Anarchy, let's sell cocaine and shoot each other. But like there's actual motorcycle groups. Um, there's interest groups like about hobbies. So, you know, like Kaylin John and all you guys, Chris, you guys play D and D. I know Chris is part of a, like a Warcraft, uh, something guild. So he's got this community of people who are all over the country, but they actually know each other and they spend time together online. Um, there's like moms groups for people who have young kids. Um, I know a buddy of mine has built a whole community around his neighbors because they all have dogs, right? So he's used his dog to become friends with like a ton of people. Um, but here's the thing. All of these different kinds of 
community are lacking a glue that's strong enough to actually hold people together, right? They're all too shallow to fulfill that ultimate need that we all have, that we're all longing for in Eden, right? Because when we were created, we were put in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve were in perfect uh, community with one another, right? They were uh, they were naked and they weren't ashamed, right? They were That's perfect community. I'm not going to get into all that. But anyway, there, there's perfect community with each other. Uh, but then more importantly, though, they were in uh, this perfect community with God because God is a community, right? The Trinity is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they all love each other perfectly. Um, and you've heard me use this phrase a million times because I love it so much. They call it, theologians call it the dance of the Trinity or the dance of God. And the idea is that they're all serving each other within the Godhead. And we were created to be a part of that dance. We were created to be a part of that community. And so God made mankind in his image and then he invited them or us, you know, he invited us into this perfect community. But when we uh, when we sinned, we left the dance. We left, we broke all of that community. We broke the community with each other, and we broke the community uh, with God, the Trinity. And that's where the emptiness comes from. We still have this like a uh, shadow of a memory, right? We still remember deep in our souls what it's supposed to be like, and we're searching for that in places, and we can't find it anywhere. And so what we need is community um, that is... The only community that will really fulfill that need is a community that is uh, one that returns us to that dance, right? Um, where the glue is actually strong enough to bind people together. Now, um, this idea of community is really important, but if you think for a second, stop and think for a second about the way that we in the West, we talk about Christianity, right? Think about our language that we use. When you became a believer... Uh, maybe it was a while ago, maybe it was recently, but what was the language that you heard? You heard things like Jesus can be your personal savior, right? I remember hearing that a lot growing up. Um, that sounds like, um, sounds very me, 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 right? Um, it almost gives the impression that our faith is about us and Jesus. Like it's about me and Jesus, right? My faith is private. It, it, I'm saved individually. And, uh, we see this outlook, right? All over the place, uh, in church, people, and not in church. I mean, like in in our culture, people don't mind if you're a believer usually, as long as you just keep that to yourself, right? As long in the West, because we're so individualistic, we think faith is private. There's no space for faith in the public square. It should have no impact on anything else but you, like this narrow lane where you have your life, but that's basically it. Um, but something this huge and life-changing can really never be private. Um, if you don't have kids, right? Um and I think most of the, a lot of the folks watching this don't have kids, right? If you don't have kids, uh, you know how annoying people with kids like Melissa and I, right? Uh, we have, you know, we have the, the kiddos. Uh, you know how annoying we become as soon as we have kids, right? Because everything about life changes. It changes, it changes all the friendships, right? Having kids is life changing. Imagine, and you know, and then all of a sudden, right? Your friends can't go out on Friday night and they can't do that. You know, um, Melissa and I had kids pretty late compared to a lot of our friends. And all of a sudden, all these relationships change. We remember what that was like. Um, imagine if somebody you knew, really close friend, you guys, you know, you spent a lot of time with, imagine if they had kids and then nothing changed, right? And the friendship, they still go out all the time and they can still go get drinks on a Thursday night. And uh, they spend a lot of money, like they have no kids and uh, they only have one car and it's a two seat Porsche, uh, you know, something like that, right? You would wonder, are these guys terrible parents? How is it that this big life-changing thing has made no impact, uh, has made no impact on their lives? 
following Jesus is kind of like that. It's a big deal and it changes everything about your life. And uh, it's not a solitary activity, right? You don't follow Jesus. Uh, We do. We all do, right? You aren't saved. We're saved. Uh, You see, the word of God, like we talked about last week in the parable of the soils, the word of God, it didn't just reach you. You're not the only good soil, right? It reached us and it did so um, with power, right? The word of God, uh, it, it, the word of God has power to, 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 well, to do a bunch of things, right? So think about Genesis one, uh, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the, you know, th- this whole section, right? Well, what does it say? It says, um, and then God said, let there be light. And then there was light, right? God said it, his word, uh, his word created the whole world, right? Um, Psalm 33, six says this by the word of the Lord, uh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. Right now, when I speak, when I say something, it has no real power. Right, nothing happens. Watch the Giants will be good at baseball. Well, no, look at that; they still stink. Right, uh, but when God speaks, uh, His word has real, actual. Uh, his word has power, and so the first place we see that is in the creation of the universe. Just um, let there be light, and then all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of light. But also God's word, we see um, another thing God's word creates is a people. God's word creates a people. And we see this with Abraham, right? He gets this guy, Abraham, uh, and he says this to him. He says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's like the, the Abrahamic covenant. But what happened is God spoke this new people into existence. And then he says, these are my special people uh, set aside for my holy purposes. God created uh, the people in the Old Testament. Last time in the parable of the soils, uh, we talked about um, how the seed that was scattered is the word of God. And um, uh, today we're going to talk about the second part of the passage that sort of surrounds the parable of the soils. And so last time what we said was we talked about the word of God individually. Um, it does save you individually, right? Um, it, it does, the word of God does redeem you and it, it impacts you individually. But that's not the end of the story. So now we move to how the word of God affects us corporately, right? How does it uh, work in uh, community, like with a group of people, not just somebody individually? And we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see how the word creates a people. So just like God spoke a word and created the people of God in the Old Testament, he does the same thing in the New Testament um, with the new humanity, the church. The second thing that we're going to see is what the word of God, so after he creates the people by his word, what he does in those people, right? What the word of God calls them to do. So what we're actually going to do here is we're going to bounce around to this chapter just a little bit. Um, So we're going to kind of start at the end, move back to the beginning. You know, uh, we're going to read the rest of these parts um, that we skipped uh, last week. So we're going to start here in Luke. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke 8. We're going to start in um, verse 19. Um, Yeah, we're going to start here in verse 19. So Luke 8, uh, 19. So this is uh, after the parable, after another part here. He says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside uh, desiring to see you. Um, so, uh, remember Jesus lived, uh, Jesus lived a whole life. You know, he was in his thirties when he started his ministry. There was a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know, um, anything about Jesus, right? Who he is, uh, I'm sorry, like what he did, uh, for a job, 
um, you know, who his friends were. There are some things we know. Um, and it says here that Jesus had a family, right? He had brothers and sisters. Um, the Catholic teaching uh, about this and where the Catholics kind of overemphasize how great Mary was, right? They kind of take it too far. Uh, one of the things they teach is that Mary was a virgin. They call the perpetual virginity of Mary, where Mary was a virgin even after she married Joseph, right? And so for the rest of her life, she was a virgin. And so when it talks about Jesus's brothers and sisters, it's Joseph's uh, kids from a different marriage or something like that. Um, but I, it, that doesn't really seem to be what it says. I mean, there's, I don't want to get into this a ton, but I mean, one, that's really mean to Joseph, right? You have to be married to this woman your whole life um, without actually being married to this woman. Um, and I mean, anyway, without getting into it, it seems like Jesus had real brothers and sisters. In Mark 6, 3, we read about his sisters. Here we read about brothers. Um, at this point of the story, though, so he does have this whole family, right? Um, at this point of the story, most scholars believe that Joseph is probably dead because of um, when Jesus is at the cross, how he asks John to take care of Mary is probably not something he would do if his dad was still alive. So at this point, Joseph probably died from something. So Jesus has this whole family, right? His mother, his brothers, his sisters, dad probably passed away. What are they doing here? Why are they coming to see him? Well, Luke doesn't specifically get into it, but um, if you read over in the gospel of Mark, he actually tells us, it says this in Mark 3, um, 321. It says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind, right? So this was the deal with his family. They thought he was nuts. Right. Remember this. Um, in our culture, we already talked about we're very individualistic. But in this culture, they were very um, uh, communal. Right. They they had this idea of clans and family honor, uh, something we don't really have here uh, in the West. And uh, Jesus was was going around and he was causing quite a stir and he was opposing the religious leadership of the day. And what that was doing was that would have brought shame on his entire family. Right. And so his his. Um, his family now is coming to him to try to, I guess, talk some sense into him. Um, and it's an interesting note to think about this, that Jesus's, um, uh, Jesus's family didn't really believe in him until after the resurrection. We don't know what Mary thought. Mary knew a lot more than everybody else, and it's not really clear. But we know his brothers didn't really believe until after the resurrection. But after the resurrection, um, we know that at least two of his brothers um, became... Uh, believers and started following him. And I always joke around, um, it's because they saw the resurrection. That's what it would take for me to worship uh, my older brother or my little brother as God, right? Is I would have to see him die and come back from the dead and then say, I'm God. And that's what happened, right? So we have James is the first one of these brothers we know about. Um, and uh, James was uh, a leader in the early Jerusalem church. Uh, and then we have Jude, right, who wrote the book of Jude. Both of these guys were brothers of Jesus. All right. So the family shows up now trying to talk Jesus, uh, I don't know, talk to him, talk some sense into him. And verse 21, but he answered them, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So there's another verse where Jesus kind of says something similar to this, where he talks about the idea of human family. Um, it's later in the book of Luke, and we'll get more into this later in the book. But uh, in Luke 14, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what, what he's saying there, and we'll get more into this in Luke 14, but what he's saying is that our biological families... He's not saying that our biological families don't matter uh, anymore now that we're part of the kingdom. Uh, but what he's saying is the kingdom is such a big deal that in comparison, right, 
um, they're not as important, right? Um, remember, the the this whole world is based off of this idea that your identity doesn't come from you. It comes from your family, from your clan. And that's so foreign to us, it's hard to wrap our minds around this. And so what Jesus is saying here is, it's not that you're not a member of that family, but it's no longer the most important thing about you. Your identity now comes from your new community. And this new community really is something special. Right, this new community really is amazing. Uh, this kingdom of God. Now that you're brought into the kingdom, so that's the section at the end of our passage. Um, now let's jump uh, back to the beginning of the chapter. So let's read verse eight, chapter eight, verse one, um, where we're going to read a little bit more about this new community. Um, so let's. It, this is sort of the setup for the whole chapter. Soon afterwards, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming. Uh, and bringing good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. So, like I said, this is actually the beginning of the text. And Jesus is now on his second sort of teaching tour through the northern part of Israel called Galilee, where he's from. So now he's doing sort of his second loop through this area. And his message was about the good news of the kingdom of God, right? And we've, we've, um, we've kind of beat this horse to death, and I love that, right? Um, the, this idea of the upside-down kingdom of God, where normal kingdoms work with the king at the top and everybody works to support the king, but the kingdom of God works the other way around, right? Where the king is at the bottom holding everybody up. And um, the way you advance in the kingdom of God, right, is by serving and loving and working your way to the bottom. And so one of the awesome things about the kingdom of God is that outsiders are brought in. Uh, it brings all different kinds of people that you would not expect to be part of the kingdom of God together, right? And we, we mentioned this when we did a sermon on who the 12 disciples were. Think about the 12, right? You have a tax collector and a zealot all in the same place, right? You have uh, fishermen, just regular guys. There's John was probably a teenager. Peter was probably older, um, probably older than Jesus, right? This was a... Uh, uh, a weird, this was a weird group of the 12, um, and the kingdom of God, that's what we are, right? We're a bunch, I always say this, we're a bunch of weirdos that would never really meet anywhere else. But you have to remember, too, when we're reading about the disciples, Luke uses this word very vague uh, compared to some of the other gospel writers from what I was reading. Um, when Luke uses the word disciples, we have to we almost have to do some investigative reporting to try to see, or, you know, investigation to try to see, is he using this word about the 12 or about a wider group? Because sometimes when he says the, the disciples were with him, right, there's like a wider group. Now look at this wider group here in verses two and three. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them. Uh, out of their means. So this, <clears throat> the next group we meet is this group of women. Um, in this culture, women were not thought of very highly, right? Socrates, if you read Socrates, Aristotle, rabbis, um, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls guys at the Qumran community, all of these folks thought very, very little of women and belittled women and said that they were not um, as worthy or, you know, um, smart or whatever as men. And um, in this culture, right, and then specifically, like in this Jewish culture, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. Um, a lot of rabbis would refuse to teach women, right? There were, um, uh, these rabbis wouldn't let women sit in on some of this teaching. Um, but with Jesus, we see a whole different attitude, right? Um, Jesus taught women, right? The parable last week that we read about um, 
the the soils and uh, he, he tells the parable and then his disciples come and ask him what it meant. The implication here is that these women in this group were part of that group that showed up with Jesus afterwards and said, hey, what does this mean? We're super confused about this. Um, that's a huge deal. In our culture, we just we don't really think much about that, right? Uh, the Some of the smartest people I've ever met, some of my favorite professors in college were women, right? Like So for us, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, but for somebody reading this in this culture, this would have been one of the most amazing things that they read about this new community, that Jesus was including and teaching women. And um, as you go further in the Gospel of Luke, you see that women play a huge role in the Gospel story. Um, one of the biggies, I'm not going to list out all the ways that women played a role in the Gospel, but one of the biggest ways was that uh, in a culture where women weren't allowed to testify in court, uh, women were the first um, witnesses to the resurrection, right? And they were the ones who went back, including some of these women that we just read, went back and were the ones who told the disciples, hey, the, the tomb is empty and, um, you know, there's angels and all this stuff, right? Um, and so here in this passage, Luke mentions a couple of specific women, right? So the first one is he mentions Mary Magdalene. So she was a woman from a city uh, called Magdala, and uh, it's a city on the western side of um, the Sea of Galilee. And all kinds of stuff. You probably know her name because all kinds of stuff has popped up about her that's totally extra to anything we know in the Bible, right? Like um, the big one is a lot of people will say, well, we know Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Um, that was added much later in kind of church history. Um, you've heard probably that, you know, there's the legend that she was Jesus's wife. Um, and that whole thing from the Da Vinci Code, right? Dan Brown wrote a, an entire book and series kind of trying to make Jesus not God. <laughs> and um, the way he did that was by saying there's this huge secret throughout church history that's been hidden that Mary Magdalene was actually Jesus's wife. Um uh, another uh, sort of extra thing from the Bible is that, uh, not from the Bible, is that she was the woman um, from chapter 7 who anointed Jesus. The problem is there's no evidence of this, and um, uh, it's sort of a confusion because the other time Jesus gets anointed, it's by a different Mary, and it, it all got kind of confused. And some people will say, well, the Mary Magdalene was from chapter 7 because they're confused. Um, but if that was true, Luke wouldn't introduce Mary Magdalene here like it's the first time we've ever heard of her. He would have called her Mary Magdalene in chapter 7. Um, she even got a fake Gnostic gospel um, and uh, that was written hundreds of years after all of these people were dead. And um, in that gospel, she is, which is where Dan Brown got a lot of his stuff from, um, she is elevated above the other apostles. I'll read to you this quote from the gospel of Mary Magdalene. Peter said to Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of the women. Tell us the words which of the Savior, which you remember, which you know, uh, but we have not heard them. Right. So basically, Peter shows up to Mary and says, God, you know, Jesus taught you all this extra stuff. Can you teach us now? Um, so there's all these extra sort of legends about Mary Magdalene. What do we actually know about Mary Magdalene? Well, she was oppressed by a group of demons and Jesus saved her from that oppression. And uh, because of that, she became a devout follower, um, and she uh, seems to um, have been a disciple through the whole ministry of Jesus, and she was a witness to the cross, and she was a witness to the resurrection, and she seems to be a really cool uh, part of the kingdom of God, but the rest of that is legend, right? We don't know a ton about her. Um, there's some other women mentioned here, too. So there's uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the household manager, 
uh, for King Herod. She would have been very wealthy, and her husband had a very important job. Um, we read about her also in Luke 24. Um, she was there on Easter Sunday. Her name is specifically mentioned, right? She was one of the group that came back and told the apostles about the empty tomb. And then there's a woman here we don't know anything about. Her name's Susanna, and this is the only time she's mentioned in the Bible. Um, but even that is super cool, because look at what this woman and Mary Magdalene and uh, um, Joanna, look what they did for Jesus, right? What did they do? They provided uh, for the ministry of Jesus out of their means, right? Um, in the military, and I was reading a book about World War II, and you know they had a whole thing about this uh, this idea. Um, they called the tooth uh, to tail uh, ratio. So in every um, every army, there are people who are out on the front and they're fighting, and then there's people supporting. There's a whole support system behind those guys, and they call that the tooth-to-tail ratio. And in World War II, uh, for every one soldier that was on the front lines uh, fighting the Germans or fighting the Japanese, um, there were three soldiers uh, behind the line supporting them. So there was one out front with a gun shooting at the Nazis. For that one guy, there were three people working behind the scenes to get supplies and to build camp and the, um, to run the administration, all that stuff, right? Now, if you ask who won the war, uh, who won the war? Who won World War II, right? Did just the guys on the front line win the war? No, everybody. This It was this whole group effort of all of these people won the war. And um, even Jesus's ministry uh, needed financial support. And needed people like her who are going to get a lot of credit for everything good that happens here, right? Um, she, these, these women supported Jesus. Not only were they disciples, but they supported Jesus and the disciples um, as they traveled around. And this is an encouraging verse to me because let's be honest, as a church planter, um, I like teaching the Bible and I like meeting with people and I like talking about Jesus and I like planning Sundays if we ever get back to, to Sundays and I like being a pastor and praying with you guys and leading prayer meetings. And I love all that stuff. And I hate fundraising. I'm a terrible fundraiser. You can see how awkward I am at the beginning of these videos where I stand here like Bernie Sanders. I am once again asking for your support, right? I'm terrible at it. And even though I'm terrible at it, it's amazing how God has still provided, despite the fact that I'm a terrible uh, fundraiser who hates asking for money. But it is reassuring to me that um, that asking for money and having people support ministry, like that's the way that it works. And if you're one of those people who support the ministry, right, we're super grateful for that. Um, and whatever happens in a ministry, it's not just me on the front lines, the face of the porch, right, that you guys see every Sunday that's going to get credit for this. It's There's the tooth to nail ratio, right, that works in the kingdom of God, too. There's people behind. Uh, we have some huge supporters that you guys have probably never even heard of. Um, or never met who are helping support this ministry. So anyway, just that's kind of a sidebar. But that's what these women did. They supported the ministry of Jesus uh, as this new community was being created, right? So we have the word of God transitioning now, right? We have the word of God, and we've seen how it um, creates this new people, and it brings together people in society that nobody would ever have expected to get to, together, right? We have we have women disciples and tax collectors and zealots and fishermen and all this stuff, right? All these people. Um, but what is it that this new community does? What should this community be doing? Well, remember our passage from last week, the passage that's in the middle of our text that we're, so we read the end and the beginning, we're kind of bouncing around. But the meat of this passage is the parable of the soils. And the idea there was that the seed of the word of God is the word of God. 
Um, and Jesus is the sower, right? He's the gardener. He's out there, uh, the farmer. He's out there scattering seed. Um, but when people are brought into his kingdom, um, what happens is now those people are deputized to help him out. Um, his new people are also called to spread the word. And so he tells another parable uh, that builds off of the parable of the soils. So we're going to jump now past the parable of the soils um, and uh, we're going to jump to verse 16. It says this, um, no one after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, or puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see a light. So if you remember, the idea with parables is these are stories that Jesus would tell with sort of a meaning alongside of it that's meant to help illuminate the gospel for his disciples. Um, and and then we had the whole thing last week. We talked about how it sort of hides the meaning from people who are not part of the kingdom. Um, so anyway, so here, what we have to do as we read the parables is find the points of reference. What is it that represents what? What is Jesus talking about? So here um, it begins, right? No one after lighting a lamp. So we have the lamp. Um, uh, think of like Aladdin almost, right? You have a like one of those kind of lamps. They were very common in the ancient world. You'd pour oil in it and there'd be a little wick and you would light the wick and it would burn the oil. Um, Jesus is building here using this imagery of the lamp. He's building on the parable of of the soil where you have the hard ground is the first soil that just completely rejects the gospel. You have the rocky ground where it seems like maybe the soil, the seed is taking root, the word of God is taking root, but there's too many rocks everywhere and uh, the, the, the plant can't grow. Then we have this, the, the weeds is the third one, where the plant grows, but so does all this other garbage. It's the busy soil. And then we have the fertile soil where it grows fruit. And so uh, the, the, the seed is planted and everything goes well and fruit expands and grows. And so this parable is expanding on that parable. And so the light of the lamp is the word of God <clears throat> taking root in that fourth soil right? Taken root in the disciples. And the meaning of the parable is obvious, right? You wouldn't, you know, the song, right? This little light of mine, um, I'm going to let it shine. Uh, you wouldn't turn on a light and then just cover it up so that you don't see any light. Um, when, uh, when the light comes into the disciples, uh, the ki- these new kingdom people, right? When, when the light of the word of God shows up, they can't cover it up. One of the marks of being a disciple is that um, your life is transformed and you're turned into, um, you know, a light to the world. Um, Charles Spurgeon, Chucky, right? The uh, 19th century preacher. He said this, every Christian is either a missionary or they're an imposter. Those are the only two options, right? Um, that's so true. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't cover the light if you really have it. And the next verse sort of gives, um, uh, the next verse expands on this, but the context here is very important in verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So to understand this verse, we have to read the context. Um, sometimes this verse is used like this, just completely ripped out of the context of this passage. And it's used like this. Every sin that you ever commit will be made public. So you better stop sinning if you don't want everybody to know what you're up to when nobody else is around. Right? You think your sin is private, but it's not. It's going to come to light. Is that the context of what Jesus is talking about here? No, it's not. Right? What's the context? Well, if you remember from verse 10, he talks about the mysteries. Right? To you, it has been given to know. Uh, it has been uh, given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And all this stuff from the Old Testament now has been made clear in your life, and now uh, you become a light. And so what Jesus is saying is this, that when people 
shine the light, when they grow fruit, whatever the metaphor is, um, when they take in the word, the word of God is then be, is then made known in their lives. It can't possibly stay hidden, right? You can't take in the word and then just keep it for yourselves. That's what he's talking about. It's not about secret sin or anything like that. And we don't want to push this nothing uh, that is hidden, right? This is a parable. We don't want to push this too far, right? So what he's saying is when you take in the light, then you spread the light. This is not about your sin. Um, but then look at verse 18, where he says, take care how you hear for uh, to the one who has more, who has more will be given. And from the one who has not, uh, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So in the scriptures now, kind of that's the closing part of this parable. In the scriptures, there's this tension um, that's never fully resolved, but there's this tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we talked about last week um, in the parable of the soils that what does it say about who changes the soil? It, it says nothing about that. And we know that God is the one who can change soil. God is the one who changes hearts. But this is sort of the flip side. At the same time, Jesus challenges his disciples to hear well. And so we just want to live within that tension, right? It's God who changes the soils, but at the same time, we have responsibility. And when the gospel takes root, we have this responsibility uh, to keep listening to the gospel over and over and over again, to keep taking in the gospel um, and then spreading it. It's not enough to take in the word yourself. You also have to do something about it. The gospel calls you to action. Um, you have this given responsibility to be a light to the world. And so uh, Jesus, like I said, he's expanding on the parable, right? If uh, two of the soils that we read about last week, right, the rocky soil and the soil with the weeds um, were people with, uh, they were church people, right? The first one was not a church person, but the two false soils that don't grow fruit were actual church people, right? Um, and then the, th the fourth one was obviously church people. It was the good soil. And what he's doing is he's sort of comparing, there's people who pretend to be you know, followers and pretend to be in the kingdom versus the people who actually are. And what he says is the ones who actually are, the good soil is the one who, who grows this fruit and keeps growing, right? Even if it happens slowly, they're growing. There's something in their life that they can see. You've, you know, he uses two metaphors, right? You grow the fruit and you become a light to the world. Um, Kent Hughes writing about this said this, humanly speaking, the spread of the light of the gospel in this world is dependent on Jesus's hearers doing his word, Happily, the more they do it, the more light that they will receive. So we'll get to this in a sec too, but one of the uh, the big ideas here is the more that you spread the word, the more that the word actually grows within you as well. So the more that you um, are outward facing uh, and thinking about the kingdom growth, the more that you will understand the gospel. And it's this, um, it's this snowball effect. And so remember what I said was the two, the two big ideas here, um, in the passage are this, that God's word, right? The kingdom of God, as the seed is scattered out all over the place, it, it grows up these plants and it creates an actual community. And then what happens is then that community takes the gospel and spreads it. Those are the two ideas. God word, God's word creates a community and then within the community causes them to spread God's word even more. And then more people hear God's word. These little communities pop up all over and then spread God's word. Um, and there's one place I really want you to kind of see how this works well, right? See how the the word of God uh, does this in practice. So the second part of the book of Luke is the book of Acts. And um, in the book of Acts, 
uh, there's an interesting story in Acts chapter 16, and it's the, the founding of the church in Philippi, where the book of Philippians was written to. And we're not going to read the whole story, but um, I'll just give you sort of the cliff notes. So Paul and Silas show up in the city of Philippi, and the first person they meet and convert, we actually read a little bit of her story last week, is this woman named Lydia, the seller of purple, right? And so she becomes, the Lord opens her heart to believe what they were saying, and uh, she becomes a believer. The next person who kind of joins this community and becomes, is is rescued by God, um, is there's this slave girl who is uh, oppressed by these demons, and uh, she's like a fortune teller, and she's owned by these guys. And she's bothering Paul, and so Paul, you know, sort of casts the demon out of her, and she's freed from this demonic oppression uh, by Paul. And that causes sort of a whole riot uh, and they're thrown in jail, and Paul and Silas are tortured, but even through the torture, they're singing praises to God. And while they're sitting in the stocks in jail, uh, in just complete and utter agony, there's this big earthquake, and the whole jail falls apart, and um, they're, they're able to escape. And um, in that culture, if they had escaped, the jailer who was keeping them would have received their punishment. Um, for sure would have died at least at a minimum, they would have killed him. But if they were set to be crucified, that guy would have been crucified. If they were set to be beheaded, he would have been beheaded. And so this guy starts freaking out, this jailer, and he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't, whoa, calm down. We're still here. We didn't go anywhere. And the guy comes over. He can't believe that they stayed to save his life. And he comes over and he basically was like, what do I need to do to join the kingdom of God? What do I need to do to be like you? What do I need to do to be saved? And so that's the community that we have. And then Paul and Silas kind of leave. And so the, the word of God is planted in the hearts of Lydia, this rich lady, uh, the slave uh, oppressed by demons, so very poor, the jailer, who would have been more like, I guess we would say, blue collar. We know that there were other people. We aren't told everybody. But the point is, where are those people going to come together? Where else in the, the world are you going to see, and in this culture especially, where are you going to see those you know, three or four people? And what happens is then the word of God preached by the Apostle Paul and his traveling companion, right, his ministry partner Silas, um, takes root in the city of Philippi. And then it's interesting, though, here's the thing. Paul and Silas have to leave town. They don't have a lot of time to sit and to pastor this church and uh, to train elders and all of this. But the word still grows among the people to the point that years later, Right, I don't know how many years, 15 years maybe, I don't know. Uh, years later, writing from prison, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And it says this at the beginning of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I love this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. So the elders and deacons is the another translation. Uh, grace to you and peace from God the Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that, just for a sec to all the saints in Philippi and enough people that you guys have now put together deacons and elders and you have this whole structure and you have pastors in charge of teaching and deacons in charge of serving and there's this whole vibrant community happening. How did that work? How did that happen? Right? How did we go from just a couple of people and Paul and Silas leaving to this vibrant community? How did it grow? The word of God creates a people. And then those people, no matter how small, are a light that shines in the darkness. Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, they didn't cover the light. They didn't cover the lamp. They lived as a new community, new as ambassadors for the kingdom in a very, very hostile city. And what was the result? That the word spread like a wildfire. The community grew um, and uh, um, it grew some more, right? And so... Um, 
That's the pattern that we see. God's word creates a community who then becomes a light, and that light shines and more communities are created. Now, let me give you two ways I think that this hits our church. Two ways that we can sort of take this in as a community. Here's the thing. Here's the first thing. Um, uh, the, the gospel should be the only glue, right? The gospel should be the only thing that binds us together as a community. In the world, we see lots of other kinds of glue that brings people together. There's a lot of things that bring people together into communities, right? There's race, um, there's like economic status, there's political affiliation, sports fandom, right? I've got my very cool corduroy 1987 NL West champions giants hat on from eBay, new old stock, excellent purchase, um, right? There's a lot of Giants fans. And whenever I'm in another city and somebody's a Giants fan and they see my hat, cause I always have my Giants hat on, you know, instantly creates a bond. Somebody will come over to me. Hey, you're a Giants fan. Um, other things like social causes, hobbies, the same thing happens to me with motorcycles. When I'm out motorcycling, other motorcyclists come up and talk to me. Um, we're, we're joined together by, I don't know, personality types. There's a lot of things. Um, and it's not bad to gather for a lot of those reasons, uh, same interests, right? That sort of stuff. It's human nature. But all of those bonds, those common bonds, are not very strong. They're not, um, uh, it's not like super glue. You know, the other night I had to super glue something. <laughs> and um, I put on a, a, like a latex, these latex gloves I use, black, like really thick gloves I use for working on the motorcycle so I don't get oil all over my hands, you know. I put it on and I super glued it and it was spilling all on the thing. Well, anyway, the, the super glue got through the gloves and then super glued the latex glove to my hand and before I realized it. And so Melissa was already asleep at this point and I spent about an hour peeling latex off. It pulled off a huge chunk of my hand, you know. Um, <laughs> super glue is strong. Like it, There's other kinds of glue that's not very strong, right? And if I had done that, it would have been no problem. It would have washed right off. Uh, that's what a lot of these communities are built on is some sort of flimsy glue that's not super glue and um, here's the thing when you talk about these common bonds and these communities the problem is when the common bond changes the community weakens right so let's take a group of people who meet together to watch a tv show every week let's say i don't know star trek discovery even though steven didn't tell me the new discovery started Still very upset about this, that I missed a whole season of Discovery because the kids in life and I missed it. Anyway, I'm going to catch up. Don't worry. Uh, but what happens when people get together to watch a show and then the show ends, right? The community fades. The group fades. Or if you're in a motorcycle group, what happens if you get in an accident and you can't ride anymore? Are you still as close with those guys as before? No, the community fades. And so for real, actual community, for the community we're longing for as we we, we have that, that longing for Eden in our hearts, for that kind of community, what we need is a glue. We need a bond that is eternal. And that's what the gospel offers. And so in church, that's what we're supposed to be. But the sad part is that a lot of churches are glued together by something that has way less power. Right? We're not using super glue. We're using the flimsy stuff. Um, this is one of my big fears, uh, planting a church. Uh, planting the porch, right? Is that something else would come and glue us together. Right? Now, Think about the ways that this happens in church. Uh, it happens uh, racially, right? You have churches with a lot of white people or churches with, you know, whatever it is. That, that It's just these churches are all one race. Um, people band together on music styles, right? Would you come to the porch if uh, we had a DJ leading worship? Would you come to the porch? 
I wouldn't. That'd be stupid. But anyway, would you come to the porch if we did the organ and hymns every week? Would you come to the porch if we had a guitar and drums? And like, what's the, is it a music style that bonds us together? Um, theology is another one. And I, I don't want to belittle theology. I love studying theology and studying the Bible, but a lot of, and, and gathering together with people who believe similar things is important, but uh, almost people do this in a, in a negative way where we pick these items that don't really matter. And we say, this is what's going to bind us together is we all believe this one specific thing about the end times, right? Or whatever. Um, another thing is dress codes, right? How do we all look on Sunday mornings? Like some churches you go, um, like I've been, I've preached at churches where I walked in dressed like I always dress, you know, like this, whatever. And everybody else was in a suit, you know, or, um, I've also seen churches where everybody dressed like, uh, they were living on a hippie commune, right? So there's like dress kind of like the way people, um, yeah, anyway. uh, another one is like economic status, right? How much money do you have? So one of the things I noticed when, uh, we left DPC, we spent a lot of time just visiting other churches before we planted the porch. And one of the things I noticed is that church in the Bay Area is really good about um, uh, mixing up. Uh, we're not like uh, churches that are all one uh, ethnic group anymore, right? So um, we're really good about that, like multicultural churches. What we're not great at is churches that have uh, people from all along the economic spectrum. I noticed a lot of churches are people in the same sort of phase of life, right? You have so college churches where everybody's a broke college student eating ramen noodles or churches of, oh, we're the church with the young professionals or we're the church with uh, a lot of older folks or, you know, um, a lot of people with a lot of kids, right? So it seems to be that like phase of life and sort of economic status binds people together. Another one is just traditions that, not that traditions are bad, but if that's what glues you together, it is bad. Um, if something other than the gospel is bringing people together, um, then we're no different than the world around us. But the calling that we see in this passage, the calling for God's people is to be glued together by the gospel and only the gospel. That's what creates our community. The word of God creates our community. Um, Don Carson says this, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Right? We are all broken people saved by grace, saved by the same king, and we serve the same king. And that's what it is that sets us apart from the rest of the world. That's what it is that creates our community. And um, so that's the first point, right? Is It's got to be, the gospel has to be the glue that holds us together. The second point is this. Um, we can't, as a community, just take in the gospel and then be done with it and hoard it for ourselves, right? The story of the people of God is not over until we become a light. Um, there are several ways that churches cover up the light. Um, they huddle together. One of the ways is they huddle together and just say, we're going to let the world around us crumble, right? And I call this the bomb shelter church. Um, you know, we're, we're going to get in our bomb shelter and we're just, whatever happens out there is fine. Um, uh, uh, that's really a terrible attitude. Um, another way that this kind of happens is when we say, okay, well, we're going to be an evangelistic church, and so we're going to have a evangelism program, right? And I hate how in a lot of churches, the main thing that we're supposed to be doing has become one of the things that we sometimes do if we feel like it. 
Um, Matt Chandler says this. Matt Chandler wrote this great book where um, I just read this book. I've read it a handful of times. I read it again prepping for just this sermon to help kind of form the ideas in my mind. And one of the things he said in that uh, that book, he says this, it's called Creature of the Word, about how the Word creates the church. Um, and he says this, uh, people who own the gospel themselves don't want to be the only ones who own the gospel. That is so crucial. If, if you really own the gospel, you want other people to own it as well. Um, what's our motivation, right? Why not just take in the gospel? You know, it's for me and then I'm saved. Who cares, right? And now I relax. What that shows, that attitude shows is that you haven't really experienced the grace of God. The grace of God changes. It doesn't just save us, right? It, uh, from sin and the effects of sin or the, the punishment from sin, but it transforms us and it changes our desires to look like the desires of God. And the, one of the desires of God is to bring people into the kingdom. And the best, the best way that you have, right? Um, so I'll say this, a lot of people want to take in the gospel and I'm just going to study it and I'm going to study it and I'm going to spend my whole life learning the gospel so that I understand it better. But they miss out on the best way that they have to actually take the gospel in their heart to a deeper level, to understand the Bible and scripture and God's word on a deeper level. The best way that you can do that is to be out there being a light. Right, And that's what he was talking about in verse 18. The more that you are a light, the more understanding of the gospel you're going to receive. And then the more that's going to make you want to be a light, and then you're going to understand more. And then that's going to make you want to be a light even more. And then you're going to understand even more as you see the gospel working in other people's lives. And there's this snowball effect. Um, the Warriors have this rookie. His name is James Wiseman. Um, I was watching the Warriors last night, and um, I'm filming this in the middle of the week. And... Um, so James Wiseman is pretty good, but he still makes a lot of mistakes. He's young. He's a rookie. He didn't really play in college. He only played three games in college. Um, so he's basically a high school kid playing in the NBA. Um, how is he going to become a better player? Somebody like Draymond Green, who's my favorite warrior of all time, who like, com- like has this mastery of the game of basketball. Now, sure, sitting in a dark room by himself or with Draymond watching film, that's going to help. Um, but nothing is going to make him better than experience, than actually being out there on the court guarding people, making mistakes, whatever it is, over and over again. And the more he plays, the more he's going to understand basketball. He actually has to to play the game to become good at it. The same is true with you in the gospel. The more that you share the gospel, the more that you live your life as a light, um, the more that you're going to see the gospel work in the lives of the people around you. And then that's going to deepen your understanding for the gospel. And it's going to stir up in your heart uh, a love for Jesus that, that wasn't there before. Or let me give you another illustration, right? Um um, Albert and Leanna and Melissa and I, we love the same, the same sushi restaurant out on Gary. It's called Katara. And, um, you know, yeah, the miso soup at a Japanese restaurant and comes in a little bowl and they bring the miso soup to you. And at first it just sits there on the counter and all the parts of the, okay, I'm going to be honest. I have no idea what's in miso soup, but all the part it's delicious though. Well, at least at Katara it is. Um, all the parts of the miso soup. So almost start to separate and all the, the, powder or whatever it is kind of sinks to the bottom. And so before you drink the soup, you stir it up with your chopsticks and then you drink the soup, right? Um, the soup, you know, after it settles, you got to stir it up. It breathes it almost like it, it breathes life into the soup, spreading the gospel and being a missional kind of person does that with the gospel in your heart. It takes the, the stagnant powder sitting at the bottom of the miso soup bowl and it stirs it up in your heart. And so it becomes vibrant and alive. And so the best way for us as a community, for you individually, to fall deeper in love with the king is to be a light to the community around us, right? Seeing the gospel take root in the lives of our neighbors 
and seeing new faith happen and new people become disciples and grow, it stirs up life, not just in us individually, but in us as a church. And if we want to be a vibrant community, which is my deepest prayer for the porch, is that we would be a place where people are coming to faith and the life of the kingdom is happening. If we want to do that, we have to be a light. We can't just huddle together and read the gospel. And so my prayer for our church is that A, that we will be glued together by the gospel of the kingdom and really by nothing else, right? I want our church to be, like I say a lot, a huge group of weirdos that everybody looks at and says, what else is it that these people have in common besides the fact that they're redeemed by Jesus? So uh, B, number two, uh, I want us to shine as a light in this city of darkness. And so for our discussion this week, on Wednesday night, um, I'm going to give you a few questions to think about and ponder before we get to Wednesday. John's going to lead Wednesday, I think. Um, uh, so here's two questions I want you to ponder before we get there. The first is this. What are, you, what are you personally, what are you tempted to use as a glue in church, right, to, to bind you to church people besides the gospel? The second thing is, uh, what dangers as a church should we be looking out for um, when it comes to like covering up the light, how are we as a church going to be tempted to cover up the light? Um, so think about those two things. We'll chat about it. And I'll see you guys Wednesday night for the prayer group. Um, let me just close in prayer now. God, we thank you that you are um, the one who gives your word and that your word created us as a church, created us as a part of the kingdom and has stirred up a love for you within our hearts. And I just pray that, um, I pray these these two ideas, Lord, that um, we would be really just held together by you and the gospel and nothing else. And that as a community, Lord, that we would be a light. And so we pray for the city around us, this city of darkness. And um, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would shine through us and the lives of our friends and our neighbors so that they will come into the kingdom, but also so that we will see the benefit of having the gospel sort of stirred up in our hearts and we will come to love you more and more as that's happening around us. So, um, we, we bow before you and humbly ask that you would do these two things among us. Amen.